This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We live in a skeptical, suspicious age. Millennials, young people between 18 and 34 years of age, are reported to be skeptical about truth claims. They suspect that such claims are arbitrary and political. They're said to be more comfortable with relationships than with fixed truths. Mark Thompson has been facing these questions for a number of years as a scholar and as a teacher. He's in town to speak to the Evangelical Theological Society, and he's on campus this week to speak to our students about biblical theology and reading the scriptures. He is principal and head of the Department of Theology, Philosophy, and Ethics at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. He's married. He's the father of four children. He's been teaching since 1991. He's a Reformation scholar who's written on Luther, Calvin, the perspicuity of Scripture, and mission, among other topics. Hi, Mark, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Tell us a little bit about Moore Theological College, and then after that I want to get into the state of evangelical Christianity in Australia. Right. Well, Moore College is an Anglican college. It was set up in 1856, interestingly, by the will of the first boat builder with the colony of New South Wales. He was a converted Christian man, left his money to set up a college for the training of Protestant youth. The bishops used it to set up a seminary. And so we've been going since 1856. We're a college that is reformed in its theological position. We resource the Diocese of Sydney with its clergy, but we are much wider in our scope and uh, we prepare people to go on the mission field as well as into parish life and to work with university students and others. We have 20 people on the faculty and uh, about 300 full-time students who uh, will do a four-year full-time residential course with us typically. And Moore has been the home of a number of well-known evangelical scholars in past and present as well. Yes, you might know people like Peter O'Brien, who taught in our New Testament department, uh, Paul Barnett, who is also a New Testament scholar, Barry Webb, who worked in the Old Testament, and we have people like Peter Jensen, who was a former principal and uh, a doctrine scholar. What is happening among evangelicals in Australia, and what's the state of Christianity generally in Australia? Much is happening in Australia that is uh, parallel to what is happening in the US. Evangelicals and Christians generally are being assaulted by an increasingly aggressive secular media and uh, indeed a a virulent new atheism that's uh, making its presence felt in Australia. Throughout Australia, though, there are great signs of hope. In the Diocese of Sydney, where I live and work, there are churches being planted, people are being converted, and uh, we are growing, not too much beyond the population growth, but growing. Whereas in other places where evangelical Christianity is a minority in Australia, the churches are declining at a rapid rate. Tell us a little bit about the Diocese of Sydney for the geographically challenged. We know about the Sydney Opera House, and we know it's in Australia, and they're not a great number of large cities, so this is a very significant city in Australia. Sydney is uh, still the biggest city in Australia. It's the first city of Australia. It's the place where the British landed and set a colony in 1788. The Diocese of Sydney is centred on the city of Sydney, but stretches out uh, beyond the Blue Mountains to the west, up to the Hawkesbury River, and way down south. So it's It's a very large diocese. We've been tempted from time to time to subdivide it, but holding together. And interestingly, one of the strengths of our diocese is that almost all of our clergy have trained in the one place, that is at Moore College. 
Well, there's a lot of unity among them. There's a lot of unity. We speak the same language. We have a common commitment to the authority of Scripture, to the centrality of the cross and the need for conversion. How many people in Australia are you trying to reach? How many people do you think uh, have no personal saving relationship with Christ? Well, at the most recent census and uh, that have been taken, uh, Christians or people who uh, regularly attend church have been down to about 2% of mm-hmm. our 18 million or something. I don't know what the current population is. But we are a very decided minority. Which is historically a significant change. Indeed it is. If you were talking about the 1950s and earlier, then on census forms, a vast majority of people would tick the box to say that they regularly attended churches. I think it was the 1950s and 1960s that the chill winds that ended nominalism in Australia came blowing through. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, strangely enough, at the same time we had the visit of somebody like Billy Graham, who saw quite a number of our current leaders converted at that point. So as you look at this situation where there's been something of a significant reversal since the 1950s, are you optimistic, pessimistic? How do you think about it? Well, I'm optimistic because God is in control and he's sovereign. There are great challenges facing us at the moment, and certainly the opinion makers who control the media in Sydney are very much aggressively secular and anti-Christian. And anything that is said by a Christian person is suddenly ridiculed. So it's very hard to get a message across to the general population of the country. We've had a virulent debate about same-sex marriage in the last few years. And when our previous Archbishop, Peter Jensen, was being interviewed about this, he was happy down the moment he started talking about what the Bible has to say. So it's very hard to get the message across that way. But we have seen people come to faith out of absolutely secular and aggressively atheist backgrounds. So God is at work. We're confident in God's purpose, and our job is to be faithful and to teach the truth. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You are an Anglican, and so let's help the listener understand what that means. In the States, we would say Episcopalian, but that's not exactly right. So help us understand what that means. Right. Well, when I tell people that I'm Anglican uh, over here, they suddenly think, okay, you must be like an Episcopalian in America. And I say, oh, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. There's some really (laughs) significant differences between what you represent and what the uh, mainline Episcopalian church in the U.S. represents. Indeed. So the common ground or what ought to be the common ground, but isn't really because it's not believed by many people, for instance, in the Episcopal Church of America. Uh, is the uh, the 16th century formularies of the 39 Articles of Religion and the Book of Common Prayer and the homilies produced by uh, martyrs like Thomas Cramner and others. So in Sydney, those things are held conscientiously. To be ordained in the Diocese of Sydney, you have to assent to the 39 Articles of Religion ex animo, that is, from the soul, sincerely, whereas you do not need to do that in, say, the Episcopal Church of America. So the grounding in the English Reformation and the English Reformation settlement is part of what we are to be Anglican. Uh, In Sydney, evangelical Anglicanism has been the character of Anglicanism almost all its life. We've had wonderful bishops who have been Bible-believing men in each of the three centuries in which we've been working. So God has been very gracious in giving us a succession of very faithful leaders who have ensured that we keep to the Bible and we keep to the task of taking the gospel of Christ to the city. Sketch for us some of these constitutional documents that you ran through quickly. For example, the 39 Articles. 
here at the seminary, we adhere to the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards, the Confession, and the two catechisms. Those would be our constitutional documents. Mm-hmm. How do the 39 articles relate to those kinds of documents? Well, the 39 articles were 42 originally when Thomas Cramner produced them in 1553, and they were published, and he was martyred in 1556. They were redrawn and some of the more virulent anti-Catholic stuff was taken out of them by Queen Elizabeth I in 1571. But this statement of doctrine, supported by a liturgical book of common prayer, supported by a series of written sermons for the less educated clergy to read called the homilies, are what we would call the Anglican formularies. Interestingly enough, although it went way beyond this in the end, and for good, I would say, the Westminster Assembly, its original task was to take those 39 articles and improve them. And so we sit in that kind of context. Thomas Cramner wasn't going to produce a set of Anglican articles. He was in contact with Calvin and wanted to produce a set of pan-European Reformed Confession. Uh, But Calvin, for other reasons, decided no, and so he produced the 39 articles. So when we talk about the Diocese of Sydney and the ministry that you're conducting, this is traditional, old-fashioned, reformed Christianity, real Protestant, hearty Protestant Christianity with a thoroughly Protestant doctrine of justification, a high view of Scripture, salvation and justification, sola gratia, sola fide, all those things. All of those things, uh, until 20 years or so ago, we would regularly have Reformation rallies in the centre of the city uh, on Reformation Day. Our college, Moore College, is uh, we require all our students to read the institutes and to sign off to say that they've read them carefully. We stand on the authority of Scripture, as I said say, the centrality of the cross. It's Anglicanism, low church Anglicanism. We're not into dressing up and using incense and all those other things. It's just simple evangelical Christianity anchored in the confessions. And it makes the Diocese of Sydney a rather unique diocese in the Anglican communion and one that the liberal diocese and people like Tech like to take pot shots at. And you, know, you made a passing reference to people who dress funny and incense and the like. Mm-hmm. And that's a reference to a movement that developed in Oxford in the 19th century called the Tractarian Movement or the Oxford Movement, which did not stay in Oxford, but has had worldwide influence, particularly among even conservative Anglicans in the United States and across the globe. Can you sketch for us quickly what that was? And you've already signaled that you're not there but why is that significant and what was it? Uh, in the 19th century, a group of people centred in Oxford wanted to see the Anglican Church move in a more Catholic direction, to embrace more Catholic doctrine and more Catholic liturgy. And, and by Catholic, you mean Roman. I mean Roman. So there was an attempt not to have the Pope as the head of uh, the Anglican Church, but to involve more ceremony and involve a greater appeal to the early church and things like that. And so people like John Henry Newman and Edward Pusey and others would do that. And uh, interestingly, in Oxford, in the church where the Assize Sermon, which is usually taken to be the starting point of the Oxford movement, was preached, on one side of the church there now, you can see the plaque to the Assize Sermon. On the other side of the church, you can see the plaque to Thomas Cramner, who was tried there before they took him out and burnt him. He had the Reformation and the attempt to undo the Reformation. (laughs) Now, it's gone around the world. It didn't really get any traction at all in Sydney because of the strength of the leadership of, of people like Frederick Barker, the bishop in Sydney, who was a convinced evangelical Charles Simeon kind of influenced man. So when those who are outside of the Anglican communions analyze it, they have to be aware that 
it comes in lots of different shapes and sizes and that there still is even i don't know how vibrant it is in the united states but there is in sydney a very vibrant traditional reformation scripture oriented as you say low church evangelical movement so that's important for the listener to understand i think you find a great variety so there's um, the episcopal church in america which is very largely particularly in its leadership liberal aggressively liberal persecuting and prosecuting um, evangelicals but even within that uh, you will find individual congregations of people who are believing, struggling to stay true to the faith in the midst of that denomination. You've got the Anglican Church in North America, which has a more Anglo-Catholic bent and yet would be people who believe the gospel, but much more high church and like the ceremony and all of that. And then you will find in various places of the world amalgams of those things and then a few odd things like Evangelical Sydney. And there are a few other dioceses, but uh, Sydney is the biggest evangelical diocese in the communion. What do you make of the current Archbishop of Canterbury? He's supposed to have some evangelical sentiments, but it's hard to tell sometimes. It's it's hard to tell, and I don't know him personally, nor have I spoken to him, so um, I have to be rather circumspect. But what I can say is everybody tells me of the evangelical background that he has. He understands evangelicals. He's been part of evangelical movements and churches. I've yet to see him make a strong stand for evangelical principles. And I'm still waiting for that. All right. You're here in San Diego County to give a paper at the Evangelical Theological Society. Mm -hmm. Just give us a thumbnail sketch. What were you here to say? I was here giving a paper at the Evangelical Theology Society, which uh, it's theme this year was on church. And so one of the distinctive things that scholars in Sydney have done over the last few decades has been to explore a biblical doctrine of the church rather fully. And so I was presenting some of that research in terms of the word ecclesia. And what are you finding? Uh, well, at the very heart of the notion of ecclesia is gathering. Uh, it's a word that's used in the New Testament, even of a secular gathering, uh, the mob that was there in Ephesus surrounding Peter is described as an ecclesia. And so the word ecclesia ought to be used of something that gathers, whether it be the gathering around Christ in heaven or the assembly gathered around the throne at the end or the local congregation. That fits in, in terms of biblical theology, with God's gathering purpose from Genesis right through to Revelation. God's a God who's gathering people to himself. And so the dignity that the New Testament gives to church belongs to those who actually gather, not to an institution, not to an Anglican communion, not to a worldwide amorphous view of Christians everywhere at every time, but rather to those who actually gather around Christ in heaven and in local congregations. That's the kind of thing I was presenting. When we come back, I want to shift gears and talk to you about the importance of the doctrine of Scripture and get into your work a little bit on Luther and his doctrine of Scripture. And we'll do that right after this. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. You did your doctoral work on Dr. Luther's doctrine of Scripture. What attracted you to that, and why is it significant? 
Well, one of the things that um, I thought about when considering where I would do and what I would do in terms of doctoral research, I wanted to work on the doctrine of scripture. It soon became very clear as I was formulating a proposal that the best way to stay close to scripture in formulating a doctrine of scripture in a secular academy was to do it through a person who self-consciously wanted to be in touch with scripture. When I came to that conclusion, Luther was the obvious man, and uh, so I went and did my study at Oxford with Alistair McGrath on Luther and scripture. And what I ended up researching was how Luther's view of Scripture related to his use of Scripture, how his view of authority shaped his interpretive method. And how did it work? It was a brilliant opportunity to get stuck into somebody who loved the Word of God and who was willing to make such a courageous stand for the Word of God. Uh, It was good to be able to reflect on such notions as the unity of Scripture in Luther, to explode a few myths about the way in which Luther used the Bible. Such as? Well, uh, the suggestion that Luther believed that the Word of God is Christ and not really the Bible. Who says that? Well, there was a suggestion in one modern author that all the reformers believed that the Bible contained the Word of God. There is a, a consensus, I can quote you the line, there was a consensus amongst the magisterial reformers that Scripture contained the Word of God. I could find no evidence of that at all in Luther. That's not a 16th century way of thinking at all. It's a 20th century way of thinking read back into the 16th century. I had a wonderful little discovery. as I went through Germany as part of this study and uh, found in a museum a copy of of a Bible where Luther had written to one of the counts of Mansfield in the cover. He said, take this book, which is the word of God. And so we were able to say, no, Luther said that. Yeah. Uh, when Bart quoted Luther, he actually misquoted Luther at this particular point and showed people that Luther believed that while only one form of the word of God can be God, that's Jesus, nevertheless, you must speak about the scriptures as the word of God. Anyone who's ever actually sat down and read Luther on his own terms, Mm -hmm. just listened to him, you could hardly come away with any other view than he had the highest reverence for the Bible as Holy Scripture, as God's Word. He constantly goes back to Scripture to say, you know, God's Word has said it, and that's the end. Not to suggest that he was a fundamentalist, but the notion that Scripture you know, contains or that we have some sort of encounter with Scripture or with the Word in Scripture or something, those things are really quite remote from Luther's way of thinking and talking about Scripture. That's right. You cannot find that kind of thinking in Luther. Luther is standard forms that he's captive to the Word of God, and he means very clearly the Scripture at that point, at what the Scripture is teaching. His mind, his conscience is captive to what God has revealed of himself in the words of Scripture. And so he is bound to have his theology shaped by Scripture. Now, one of the other things, obviously, is how did he deal with parts of the Bible that he had difficulty with, like James? He had difficulty with uh, the epistle of James on two fronts. The Catholics kept quoting James 2 against him on justification by faith, and that was irritating. As well as that, he found it hard to see Jesus right at the forefront of James's argument. And Luther's great principle was the whole point of Scripture is to drive home Christ. So for that reason, he thought this is not as central a piece of the Bible as other parts of the Bible. So he put it into his appendix. Couldn't cut it out of the Bible. He spent all his life wrestling with it, promised that he would give his doctor's cap to anyone who would help him to reconcile Paul and James. And he did a better job of that in his later years than he did. 
you, know, you look at the way he talks about James in the 40s, 1540s, is quite different in some ways than the way he talked about it in the 1520s. That's indeed the case. But for one of the things uh, that you see in Luther is Luther saw that some parts of the Bible more clearly presented Christ than other parts did. And we know that. When you are, have a young Christian who asks you, what part of the Bible should I be reading? Very rarely do you point them to the book of Chronicles. Yeah, you're not going to send them to Ecclesiastes. No. You're going to send them to, to the Gospel of John. You're going to send them to the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels because you know that Jesus is going to be placarded there. Then they can move to the other things. And it was really, that's about where Luther landed. That, yes, James is part of the canon, but it's not the first thing I'd point people to because you'd actually need to understand what Paul's saying yeah. so that you don't misunderstand what James is saying. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses from 1517, and then, you know, we're going to have a giant 500th anniversary of the Reformation. There'll be lots of celebrations, lots of books and articles and so forth. Let me put this sort of directly, because I can imagine a young person listening to this and maybe... Uh, he or she has heard a lecture about Luther in, in university, but otherwise he's a sort of a remote figure. Why should anyone today care about an overweight Saxon monk? We're going to spend a year celebrating Luther in, in 2017. Are we wasting our time or is this a worthwhile enterprise? I think it's entirely worthwhile because here is a Christian brother of ours who stood before all the might of the world at the time, not just the might of the church, but the might of the Holy Roman Empire. So it's like standing before the United Nations and he made his declaration of faith there and said, here I stand, I can do no else because his mind is captive to the word of God. He made a courageous stand for the gospel. And in Luther's case, you saw the difference that believing the gospel made to life. So the massive contribution that Luther makes to our experience of Christianity now, there was no such thing as a pastor's family until Luther came along. Well, not legitimately. Well, not legitimately <laughs> anyway. No, that's right. Not there openly. were plenty of children of pastors uh, and who shouldn't, and popes even, yeah, yeah. yes. That's right. But uh, but you could have a the model of a pastor's home comes yeah. from Luther. The insistence that the Bible needs to be provided to the people in their language. He translated the Bible into German for the Germans. In about 11 weeks, by himself in a castle. Which Indeed. Is, which is phenomenal. And in a translation which shaped yeah. the German language, really. In, in the same way that Tyndale's translation of the Bible into English had a massive effect on the English language. Indeed, there's a very strong parallel between the two. Yeah. But he believed that every believer should have access to the Word of God, and therefore that's why he translated it in that way. And we toss around these slogans, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But if it wasn't for Dr. Luther between 1513 and 1521, as he gradually laid hold of these truths and began to call into question things that he had been taught and things that he had believed on the basis of the scriptures, without him, we really aren't talking about justification by God's free acceptance through resting, receiving, trusting in Jesus alone. He really gives that to us. He does, and he gives a great understanding of the Christian life, how you live in the light of that. There are two great slogans that come from Luther's understanding of justification. One of them is that the Christian life's about always sinning and always repenting. Sin is something that we struggle with all our lives. We're not free of it until Jesus returns. Not even in Australia? Not even in Australia. <laughs> even more so, I'm afraid, I think. Uh, but you're always repenting. That, that dynamic is the dynamic of the Christian life. You don't ever reach perfection now, and that's really important in some 
parts of the world where perfection and prosperity are proclaimed as the gospel, Christian life is a struggle until the Lord returns. His other great slogan is that we are at the same time righteous and sinners, that our righteousness is absolutely secure because it's in Christ. It's because of what Jesus has done. My standing before God has been settled by Christ. But in this life, I am still a sinner who is so absolutely dependent upon Christ. I am as dependent upon him now as I was the day that I became a Christian. And that's a really helpful thing for us to see both things in the Christian life now. And he really believes in the Christian life. And Luther was a theologian of the Christian life, and he wanted the believer to daily die to self and die to sin and live to Christ. Sometimes people suggest that Luther wasn't very interested in sanctification. And you're laughing, and, and of course I'm smiling, because anyone who's read Luther knows that he was vitally concerned that the believer would make progress in sanctification. Indeed. In one of his very early tracts in the 1520s, he wrote, Our theology does not free us from good works. It frees us from false opinions about good works. And he certainly believed that faith, as he wrote in his preface to the Romans, is a busy, living, active thing that doesn't ask what good works are there to do, but before the question is even asked, is about the doing of them. He was committed to godly living, but he was realistic about the continuing presence of sin. So he didn't fall into the trap of perfectionism, nor did he fall into the pit of despair as well. One last thing before we we let you go. You've been very gracious to spend time with us. Been fun. Yeah, one of the great questions in the Reformation was the relative authority of Scripture, and behind that was the relative clarity of Scripture. Rome was suggesting, and still likes to suggest, that Scripture really isn't clear enough to be understood, so that we need to trust the Church before the Scripture. If you talk to any well-educated Roman Catholic layman, one of the first things you'll hear is, well, Scripture has this passage and that passage, and who really knows what this all means? Why did Luther reject that view of Scripture, and why is it so important for us to continue to follow him on the clarity, the essential clarity of Scripture? What's at stake there? What's at stake ultimately, I think, is the character of God. This is God's Word, Did God intend to communicate? And if God did intend to communicate, can he effectively do it? Human language is not something that is foreign to God. God created it. God creates us to speak so we might speak to him and speak to each other about him. And so human language is no necessary barrier. God speaking in human words to us is no necessary barrier to God's communication with us. God is an effective communicator. And the problem is not that God hasn't spoken clearly. Mm. The problem is that too often we don't like what he has to say. So when a believer opens up his Bible and he begins reading it, he should read with the expectation that generally he can make sense of it. I think that's right. That doesn't mean that some parts aren't hard. Some parts are harder than other parts. The Bible is not uniformly simple. Simplicity and clarity are two different things. But the whole function of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is to give you confidence that when you approach the Bible, that you can approach it with confidence that God will speak to you. God will address you in His Word. It may mean that you need to wrestle with things that you're unfamiliar with, but God has something to say in His Word, and He's very good about saying it. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.